turn in your Bibles to Romans 14 as we continue our series on the healthy church. I know that we've been here. We'll be here a little bit later than normal when we have a service like this. So I won't waste any time tonight. I promise you that. Um, We'll just plug right along through the text. But um, I really feel like we need this tonight. I don't want to get in too much of a hurry um, because this is an important message in this series. And I want our church to get this. If you're a newer member, um, I've preached this thought before to our church, but I want you to get it. I want you to wrap your mind and heart around these truths. I believe Romans 14 is vital to the health of our church. Vital. We've got to understand these truths written to the church at Rome. If we're going to learn to get along when we disagree. I want to take a quick survey of the crowd. If you'll indulge me for a moment. Just by the raised hand, that's how you can answer my questions, okay? How many grew up in a Christian home? Raise your hand. All right, a good number of you. How many are first-generation Christians? Your mom and dad weren't Christians. You're the first Christian in your home. Raise your hand. All right, a good number of folks. How many grew up in in a Baptist church? Baptist church of any kind. All right. How many grew up in a non Baptist church? And that's okay. That's okay. All right, good. How many were saved at a young age? Let's say under the age of 10. How how many were saved under the age of 10? Okay. All right. By the way, that's why I'm glad we bring our kids in on Sunday nights. We're not just teaching them how to worship, but but we're introducing them to the gospel. I like that. Um, How many got saved under the age of 20? Raise your hand. How many got saved over the age of 30? Over the age of 30. Okay. All right. How many went to public school? You had public education. All right, most people. How many went to Christian school? Raise your hand. Okay. How many were homeschooled? Raise your hand. Okay. Most importantly to the survey, if you had one more meal to eat before you died, and you had three choices, steak, pizza, or tacos, what would it be? Steak, raise your hand. All right. Pizza, raise your hand. You can't raise your hand for both. Steak pizza. pizza? (laughs) How about tacos? Raise your hand. That's me right there. So so the battles between the tacos and and the steak. Um, That's an important question for our faith tonight, for sure. In all seriousness, did you see how many differences there are in our congregation alone? You know, that's not a bad thing. That's representative of the fact that we are helping all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We don't give background checks before you come in the door. We don't need to know how you were educated growing up. You can be educated in whatever way and you can still fit in here. I don't care if you grew up in a Baptist church or a non-Baptist church. If you're raised in a Christian home or you're a first generation Christian, if you're saved at a young age, listen, there are so many different stories and backgrounds and spiritual maturity levels represented in our own congregation with this amount of differences. Don't you think there's potential for disagreement? Paul writes this text to the Romans. I believe it's preserved for us today to teach us what to do when those differences, as good as they are, when they become disagreements. Many years ago, a Scottish theologian by the name of of John Duns Scotus developed a pretty loyal group of followers. They were called the Dunsmen. When the supporters of another theologian, a Catholic man by the name of Thomas Aquinas, 
began to dispute and argue with the Dunsman over some theological issues, Aquinas' boy, boys turned the Dunsman's name into an insult that was used commonly for many years. They called them dunces. Think about that. An inner church fight gave our world a long-running name for an idiot. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's the Catholic church, but not us Baptists. Then consider this quote from a book called The Baptist Story, which traces the history of the Baptist from England to today. It says, where two or three Baptists are gathered, it seems three or four opinions are in the midst of them. <laughs> Sadly, the, the, the glorious history of Christianity includes some, well, rather inglorious chapters in which we were too busy arguing amongst ourselves to advance the gospel beyond ourselves. In some ways, this is not all that surprising when you think about how the gospel of Jesus throughout history has brought a wide assortment of people into the family of God. Just in the church at Rome, the gospel brought together the rich and the poor, the slave and the master, the former Gentile pagan and the Jewish priest. And they all found themselves sharing a common seat in the same sanctuary. Inevitably, that kind of diversity will lead to differences of opinion. People from that many levels of life are simply not always going to see eye to eye on everything. And that's okay. And here's why. Don't miss this. The unity that Jesus desires for his church does not mean uniformity. That's called a cult. We're all all going to think alike, look alike, vote alike, live alike, or believe just alike in every single way. And though we may and we should agree wholeheartedly on the truths that are essential to our faith in Jesus and the gospel, we will at times have different opinions on things that are not so concrete in Scripture. So what do we do when that happens? When our differences become disagreements, how do we get along when we don't agree? Three headings in our text we're going to walk through and study together tonight. Number one, the conflict. Number two, our conduct. And number three, our concentration. Notice our are the conflict. In our text, in verse number one of chapter uh, 14, Paul refers to two kinds of people, the, the weak brother and the strong brother. The weaker brother, don't miss this now, is the brother that needs stricter standards or else he's going to fall into sin. Okay? The stronger brother can have looser standards and still remain holy. Okay? That's who was having conflict in the church of Rome. But what kind of conflict were they having? What was it they didn't agree on? Well, in this text, Paul addresses a couple of issues. What a Christian should eat and when a Christian should worship. Look at verse 2. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. So the city of Rome was a city filled with temples. Almost everyone in Rome was an idol worshiper. So most of the meat sold in the market had been presented to an idol for its blessing. And some of it was actually offered to an idol. What they would do is put the meal right out in front of this statue, literally. But because the idol was typically an inanimate object, the meat was rarely eaten. So then they would pick it up and they would take it and sell it in the market at a discounted rate. Well, some of the Roman Christians, particularly the, the Jewish ones, felt like the fact that the meat had been offered earlier to an, to an idol permanently tainted it. And so to, to accept the discounted meat at the market would, would be to participate in idol worship. Plus, a lot of that meat was pork and they looked down on pork anyway. 
So to avoid all this, many Christians in this church simply refused to buy meat in the market and they ate only vegetables. Yet other Christians in the Roman church said, no, no, we know that idols are not really gods. There, there's only one true God. And Paul taught us that Jesus's death has cleansed all things for us, including meat. So pass the bacon. Can I do another survey? How many of you would have been on team veggie? I mean, if you had to pick between bacon and veggie, how many, it's okay to admit you're weird. How many would, would, would say veggie? All right, Miss Linda, thank you. Thank you. I see that hand, that one hand, two hands. Very good. How many be on team meat eater? Well, let's go. That, that was the source of this first conflict. The second is found in the first part of verse five. Look at it. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. What's this about? Well, there were Jewish Christians in the church who still thought that the Sabbath, which is our Saturday, was the day they just, that they should worship. I mean, it had been a big deal in Israel for 1500 years. Why change it now? Well, other Christians, particularly Gentiles in the church, said, no, these special days are part of the old law and the death of Jesus, as Paul has taught us, has completely released us from having to observe them. So the conflict in this church was about meat and days. Now, I'm not going to talk to you about meat and days. We're not really fighting over that. We don't generally disagree on that. But we have our own Romans 14 issues, don't we? Like matters of dress. Like one lady could wear something that she feels is appropriate that another lady in the same church might, might feel is inappropriate. The Bible's not super clear on, on it. One man might wear something to church to worship that he feels is appropriate. And another man might wear something to church that he feels appropriate and they're dressed totally different. Yeah. One mom might let her daughter wear something that another mom wouldn't let her daughter wear. There's matters of music, personal listening music. You might be comfortable listening to this genre of music. Doesn't do anything with your mind sinfully. It doesn't turn you into a carnal person in your attitude or your actions. And you can listen to that and be just fine. Yet another Christian might say, if I start listening to that music again, then it's going to take me back to my before Christ days. And I just don't think well when I listen to that music. Church music. Some, some church members think that the only songs that can be sung, and they're convinced of this in their mind, had to be written in the late 1800s to the mid-1900s. That is the sanctified music of the day. And there's some great songs written in that time period, by the way. We're about to learn one. And, and then there are other Christians like, no, I like all the new stuff. And then there are sanctified Christians that like both. Some in the church world's like, you can only have a piano and an organ. That's it. That's it. Even though the church argued about those when they put them in because they were originally made popular in a saloon. But, but yet some churches like ours are like, hey, if we have people gifted to play an instrument, let's get it. And then churches are different. Some Christians are comfortable celebrating certain holidays, whether it be Halloween or the Easter Bunny or whatever the case might be. And some Christians are like, no, my conscience just doesn't let me go there. 
Some in the education world, some are convinced I'm going to take full ownership of educating my child at home. And some are like, you know, I I like the alternative of a Christian school. And some are like, I want my child to be educated in public education. There's different parenting philosophies in our congregation. There's different church policies. There's political preferences. Can I just say this? There's all things COVID. These are gray issues. And if you're struggling with something I mentioned, you're like, nope, that's not a gray issue. You need to sit down with me and let's study Romans 14. Because that's where a lot of people go wrong is they want to make gray issues real concrete and black and white. And that's where we really get in trouble. This message is not for that person. That's a whole nother message. I'm talking about these things where the scripture just isn't clear. But there's all these convictions and that's okay. Here's where there's danger in our differences. Because we're human, we have this thing in us called pride. That means when we're convinced about something, we by default think everybody else should be convinced of it too. Despite the fact that it's not clear in scripture, it's just something we heard on YouTube. And then when somebody holds a different opinion and they're equally as convinced of it, guess what might happen? This. Even inside a church, definitely at a workplace, inside a home, an argument may sue. And that's what Paul is telling this church and our church to avoid. Look at verse one. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Paul is saying that there are things we'll disagree about in church, but they shouldn't lead to division. If the weaker brother feels it necessary for him to have a stricter standard when it comes to food, fine. Receive him and don't let a disputable, doubtful issue cause you to argue and separate. Now, he's not saying that there's never anything the church shouldn't divide over. Throughout Paul's letters, he's identified things that should warrant separation. Like in Galatians, Paul basically says, if anybody comes along and teaches another gospel different from what I've taught you, he is accursed. Label him as a false teacher and do not let him anywhere near your church. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if someone is practicing open sexual immorality, whether that's heterosexual or homosexual, and they will not repent, you need to make steps to remove them from the fellowship. I didn't write that. Paul did. But listen, not everything we differ on in the church rises to that level. A theologian named Michael Bird gives three levels of importance for issues in the church. I have found this very helpful. I think you will, too. The most important level is this, matters essential for salvation. An example, deity of Christ, blood atonement of Christ, bodily resurrection of Christ. You don't have to understand those things fully to be saved, but you can't deny them. Then there are these matters that are important to a local church. They're still important, but they're not essential for salvation. Like we don't have to agree on the ordinances for you to be saved. We don't. We don't have to believe on how how we should govern the church. Or how we interpret qualifications for a pastor and a deacon. We think those things are important in areas where we feel the Bible speaks. But we apply that to our local church. You don't have to line up perfectly to be saved. Are you with me? Important, but but not for salvation. But then there's matters of indifference. These non-essentials. Debatable things. Preferences. Opinions. I, I, I gave you a list of those earlier. Paul is teaching us, do not argue. Don't even argue. Certainly don't separate over matters of indifference. Rather, in verse 1, what did he tell us to do? Receive that brother. 
Receive him. Now you might, you might think, okay, that just means shake his hand at church and don't act like a jerk to him. But I don't have to like him or her. No, that's actually not what it means. Because if you study that Greek word, it's the same Greek word that is used to describe how Jesus receives us into heaven. In John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Jesus isn't receiving us with any reluctance. On these disputable matters, we receive our brother and sister in Christ as Jesus receives them. And moreover, we receive them precisely because he has already received them. Verse three, study with me. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth for God hath received him. In other words, who are you to look down on someone that has looked up to Jesus and found his arms open to them? Paul goes on in verse four, who art thou that judgest another man's servant to his own master? He standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holding up for God is able to make him stand. So you think that, that, that this brother you go to church with is a little too loose in where he goes or, or what he does. Or perhaps you think this sister is just an old prude who doesn't understand the liberty of grace and is too strict and too old school. Frankly, church, listen, you don't need to argue with them. They don't serve you. You're not their master. Jesus is, and he's quite capable of handling them and helping them to be right. It's not that we can't have healthy dialogue about these disputable matters, but we got to be careful to not engage in any way or on any platform that invites an argumentative spirit. Spiritual maturity, hear me, is not revealed by how you stand for things that are clearly spelled out in Scripture like matters essential for salvation. Spiritual maturity is revealed most by how you deal with and communicate about the matters that aren't as clear in Scripture. And guess where the majority of church fights take place? Not fighting over the deity of Christ. Not fighting over the bodily resurrection of Christ. Not defending the imminent return of Christ. Or the inerrancy of the, of the word of God. We're fighting over stupid stuff. Right? Because we heard this guy voted that way or this, this lady voted that way or they do this or they've got that candidate's sign in their yard. That's what we're voting over. We're voting over the fact that, that they let their kids do that. I'd never let my kids do that. We're fighting over these matters of conscience. That's silly, isn't it? That's silly, isn't it? This leads us to the second heading of the text and that's our conduct. Though the things the weak and strong believers disagree about are not worth arguing about, they're still important. Did you hear me? And they're important. That's kind of a subjective term, but they are important to them. The question then is this, what should guide our conduct when these differences become disagreements? Well, we've got to realize this. There's a subjective factor in our conduct, a subjective factor. Verse five, um, one man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Now watch this. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Okay? Two believing Christians are in view. One of them really feels strongly about observing a certain day or special days as a matter of, of spiritual conviction. The other Christian feels that every day under grace is a special day and, and no day should be treated differently than the other. Well, here's how Paul settles it all. 
He said, every person has to be fully persuaded in his own mind. And then he said this, let them. Let every man be persuaded in their own mind. Now, I want you to know something. It's not like Paul was being wishy-washy. He actually had an opinion on this matter. Look all the way down at verse 14 in your Bible or look at the screen. He said, I know, and, and there's the word, persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So, so Paul was definitely on team meat eater. But he didn't gossip about team veggie. And if you want to know Paul's personal opinion on special days like the Sabbath, you could turn over to Colossians chapter 2 where he teaches that after Christ died on the cross, there is nothing inherently special in any day of the week. He had an opinion. He's not saying everybody's right to each their own. Paul actually thinks the weaker brother's wrong. But that's what makes this passage so helpful. Because Paul shows us what to do with people in the church, the same church as us who we disagree with on things that are not essential to salvation. He says, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. In other words, let every man settle this personally using their God-given conscience. Conscience, that's where the subjective matter comes in. We don't talk about conscience anymore, and that's tragic because conscience is a gift from God. Your conscience is this moral intuition where you know something before you can articulate it. Before your head knows it, your heart feels it. That's your conscience. Parents, you know what that feels like. When your kid's asked to do something, you're like, I can't put my finger on this, but I don't feel good about it. It's a conscience. Tim Keller writes, Paul says that we need to think out our behavior. We need to see whether the Bible really commands or forbids some practice or whether it leaves the conscience free. If it does leave the conscience free, we have to then decide if our conscience feels any conviction about doing it or not doing it. The point is that you should obey your conscience and never do anything that you're not fully persuaded of in your mind. But listen, that doesn't mean that your conscience can't ever be wrong. And it doesn't mean that your conscience can't be better informed. Your conscience, so it's a gift from God, it's not infallible. The Holy Spirit's infallible, the Word of God's infallible, but you should always be growing and gaining biblical insight that'll inform your conscience. That means you have to be humble enough that you're willing to back down on something you've always stood for if you get better informed. Or you tighten up on something after being shown a better way. An example of this is the Apostle Peter. His conscience was bothered when he ate with Gentiles. He'd grown up hearing and thinking his whole life this is impure. So Paul had to bring them in. Go study it. Galatians chapter 2. And Paul had to say, dude, you're wrong. Like, I know you feel this in your conscience, but let me inform you to bring you more in line with the gospel post the cross. So there might be some things in your past that has informed your conscience in terms of parenting or dress or music or education or politics or ministry philosophy or whatever. It's possible that those who influenced your conscience weren't lined up with the principles of scripture as much as you thought they were. Whether that mean they were, meant they were holding the line too tight or not tight enough. If that's ever the case, hear me please. Have a spirit of humility. 
Have a spirit of flexibility. If God sends something or somebody your way to better inform your conscience like he did with Peter. If God sends a godly person in your life. If you hear a sermon from the pulpit. If you read something in your personal devotion time. And the Holy Spirit informs your conscience. Don't dig your heels in the ground and say, I'm never changing that. My dad and his dad would roll over in their grave if I changed that. They won't roll over in their grave, one thing. It's impossible. But don't over-exaggerate your loyalty to a Romans 14 issue. Are you with me? Those that are humble are always willing to change their mind. I can't tell you how many things, Brother Kelby, I've changed my mind on in the last nearly 16 years of ministry. I came out of Bible college believing that you couldn't put words on a screen. And there were words on the screen at Fellowship Baptist Church. And I had a problem with that, even though I was being paid to lead the church and sing. And I thought, we need to have songbooks in our hand. Our kids need to learn how to sing those notes. Because that's in the Bible. <laughs> Psalms had notes, not just lyrics. And I, I really believe that the loud sounding symbols mentioned in Psalms 150 had nothing to do with loud sounding symbols. That the writer should have said something different. When I started studying the Bible and became less institutionalized, I guess, I realized that my conscience needed better informed. Right? It's okay. It doesn't mean we have to go in any direction. I, I just realized that's actually a Romans 14 issue. It's a matter of conscience, see? That, that's a subjective matter and people are going to come to different positions on that. But then the next few verses teach us that, that though we are left to our conscience, we're actually not left completely to ourselves in making this decision. It gets dangerous, right? When you're like, it's my conscience, just let me do it. Well, hold on a second. There's also a supreme factor, not just a subjective factor. There's a supreme factor in our conduct. The matter of what you do or don't do in these, these areas not firmly settled in Scripture is one you need to think through, but you don't think through by yourself. Look at verse 6. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it, watch, unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day, to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. So watch here, Paul is making the point that the one who chooses to eat whatever he wants does so not just because he wants to or just because he can, but because he eats it as unto the Lord and at the end of eating it, he's able to say, thank you, God. What we see is that our conduct as believers is connected to our relationship to Jesus as the Lord of our life. In every decision we make about our own conduct, Jesus Christ is the ultimate factor. Paul says in verse 7 or 8 that none of us as a believer lives wholly unto himself. Look at 7 and 8. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. What this ultimately means is that whatever you do or don't do as a believer must first be ran through the filter of a simple question. And I put it on the screen for you. Can I do this in a relationship with Jesus and thank him for it? I've known a lot of carnal Christians that will leverage Romans 14 in a carnal way. They'll say, hey, that's my grace. Because I can, I should. 
So get off my back. My conscience is just fine with this. Well, your conscience is the subjective factor. After your conscience tells you you can, you better go to Jesus. He's the supreme factor. He's the Lord of your life. Uh, so, so with a clear conscience, with an absence of Holy Spirit conviction, can you do this? Can you wear this? Can you go there? Can you watch this? Can you spend your money on that? Can you listen to this? Can you vote for them? And then say thank you God afterwards? See, I, I think that that starts to bring a little more holiness into our lives at that point. Some people get nervous about interpreting Romans 14. They, they don't like that phrase. Let everybody be persuaded in his own mind because they just want to control what people think. I don't, I'm not trying to control you. But I'm telling you that your conscience isn't the only factor. What you think based on your study and research and your, what your brain is telling you isn't the only influence. Jesus is the Lord of your life. And he gets the final vote. Let's, let's have one more heading and we'll go home. Our concentration. When we disagree with a brother or a sister over an issue such as the text raises, our temptation to get into an argument with them rather than well, get along with them is really just a temptation to lose our focus. So if we shouldn't focus on our differences, what should we focus on? Paul tells us first on whom we ought to Focuses. He, he takes these minor differences between believers and he plants them under the bigger truths of the gospel. Verse 9. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. Think with me. The crucifixion and, and the resurrection of Jesus were the purpose of him becoming Lord over all his people whether they be living or dead. This means that Christ has earned his lordship over you. When he died and he was risen, he became your Lord. Therefore, you ought to keep your focus on him. And if you're focusing on him, then Paul's question in the first part of verse 10 is very reasonable. But why dost thou judge thy brother? If Jesus is Lord of your life, why dost thou set it not thy brother? Are you seeing how Paul's logic begins to make sense here? It comes together. If he's Lord over all his people by way of his death, burial, and resurrection, and he's Lord over you, then why should you judge your brother? Or look down on someone else under his lordship? John Stott applies it this way. Because he is our Lord, we must live for him. Because he is also the Lord of our fellow Christians, we must respect their relationship to him and mind our own business. I could have just summed up the message with that last line. Hey, church, mind your own business. Everybody stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. You do that, we've got a lot of problems solved. See, if you really understand that Jesus is Lord over you, and I understand Jesus is Lord over me, watch. Both of us ought to have enough focus on him to keep us occupied from here to eternity without getting too worried about what everyone else is doing. If you trust that he is capable of being Lord over you, then you must also trust that he's capable of being Lord over your brother and sister around you as well. And he doesn't need your assistance all the time to supervise him. How many of your kids have ever tried to become a family informant? They slink up to you to 
give you this inside information on what their sibling is doing is as though they may gain some sort of immunity for themselves. At one point or another, you've probably told that child, you let me worry about them. You just take care of you. Can I get an amen, parents? Paul essentially tells us the same thing. You let Jesus worry about what everyone else is doing. He's Lord. You take care of you. And you have plenty to take care of between you and Jesus. Yeah. But he not... He doesn't just tell us on on whom we ought to focus. He closes with this thought on what we ought to focus. Look at the end of verse 10. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Drop down to verse 12. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Note carefully in that verse. That every single one of us will give account of ourselves to God. You will not speak for anyone else on that day. In fact, I have a feeling you won't even feel like it. You will not stand alongside that brother you may think is less of a Christian than you are. Or a terrible parent. Or doesn't know how to handle their money. Or doesn't believe in separation. Or is worldly. Or is hypocritical. You won't stand beside them. And answer for them. You will stand before Jesus by yourself and for yourself. And if you're fully aware of that day and you're aware of that accountability to Jesus, hear me, it ought to be enough to keep your eyes on him and concern yourself with the parameters of your own life in relationship to him. The majority of church problems, family problems, work problems is somebody that has their eyes on another person's business. Boil down, I'm just going to put it right where it's at. It's somebody that is more focused on other people than their own spiritual life. Jerry Hogsett, a researcher with the USDA, tells about a problem that can affect cattle. I don't know if this is true. Maybe Garrett, you could, uh, he could tell me whether it is or not. But um, he, he calls it fly worry. He says a cow can become so obsessed with shooing flies away that it forgets about eating and eventually starves itself. I don't know if that's true, but we'll pretend like it is tonight. Because Christians act the same way. We're so focused on shooing the flies out of other people's lives that we forget to stay focused on our own spiritual health. I'm going to be super frank with you and I love you. I love you. I love you. But, but it's difficult for me to listen to one sinner complain about another sinner. That's difficult for me. I understand we have to talk about those things and deal with those things. But when one person comes up and, and, and throws a, a, another church member under the bus for what they did and they don't have that stellar of a track record themselves. I struggle with that. It's not healthy. It's not gracious. It's not humble. If we're shooing flies out of everybody else's life at work, shooing flies out of every other parent's life because they're dumb parents, shooing flies out of everybody else's life in our family, I'm telling you, your own spiritual health will be neglected and you'll become spiritually anemic. Not healthy. The Roman emperor, I'm hastening to a close now, his name was Julian. He hated Christians. He wasn't even secretive about it. 
At one point, to many people's surprise, he did something unusual. He called all the bishops together and he demanded that they work out their differences. Sadly, Julian found out that rather than working out their differences, they only highlighted them more. And they ended up more divided than ever. And I'm going to quote him as saying this. He said, no wild beast are as dangerous to man as Christians are to each other. No wild beast are as dangerous to man as Christians are to each other. It's sad that anybody would say such a thing. It's even sadder that at times we have proven that sort of thinking to be true. When we come together as believers, there are always going to be differences. But the differences between us are easily bridged by the gospel that brought us together in the first place. One Lord Jesus has died to save every one of us from our sins. He has risen from the dead and he lives right now to be the Lord over each and every one of our lives. With him over all of us, we can and we should get along even when we don't agree. I have been careful not to say we should agree on everything tonight because we don't have to. But we can be led by the Spirit and humble enough to get along. Quit complaining about each other. Quit being negative. Quit gossiping. I'll just close with this. My dad's always taught us. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. We're not going to argue about the deity of Christ. We're not going to argue about whether he died for the church or not. We're not going to argue about whether or not he's going to return. We're not going to argue about the bodily resurrection of Christ. All right. We're not just there's no room for even discussion about that. But in non-essentials. Things that might even be important to our own local church, but aren't important to other local churches in the same way. We don't just show liberty, liberty. But in everything, here's the big umbrella in everything. Charity. Be a person of love, man. Be a person of charity. And didn't Paul talk about that? He said, you can sound good, look good, go to the ends of the world telling people about Christ. Right, Brother Noah? But if you don't have charity, he says, you are nothing. I don't care how you sound when you sing a song. I don't care how I preach when I preach a sermon. How good you look when you take the offering. How gifted you are with children's ministry. How cool you look serving on security. I don't, I, I don't give a rip. If you aren't a loving person, on the authority of the word of God, you are nothing. That means, it doesn't mean you're unloved by God. It means that all of those things you're doing out of a carnal spirit, they mean nothing to the Lord. Unless they're done out of a heart of love. And so this is one of those sermons. It's either if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, wait, just wait. You're going to need it. 
No matter how it lands with you tonight, no matter how the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart, do not run from the truths of this sermon. Do not let them go over your head. Do not think for someone else across the room. They're for you and they're for me. We need this church. I wouldn't preach it. I don't like stepping out of a book of the Bible. This is on purpose. I preach this not for preventative maintenance. Many in our church need this right now. Right now they need this. And if that's you, get to an altar. If it's not you, get to an altar. And say, God, keep me humble. In essentials, unity. Non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Stand to your feet, every head bowed.